2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermeneus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honourable use, some for dishonourable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonourable, he will be a vessel for honourable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's not common practice to lead with the punchline, uh, either when you're telling a joke or when you're giving a sermon, um, but I, I reckon that's going to be the best way for us to make a start today because there's a lot going on in this passage and there's a whole bunch of thoughts running through it. And it'd be so easy to go off onto a whole heap of different tangents and, and not really get to the bottom of what it's really trying to say. So um, the key thought that ties all of these concepts together, I reckon, is verse 15, which says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And we're going to spend more time on, on that one verse than any of the other verses because we really need to nail down what this central point is. A and then the rest of it's just going to all fit together for us. When a person preaches or when they teach in the church, it, it's actually quite tempting to go for a message that's going to meet the approval of men. All right? We all like to be liked and we don't like to be the sorts of people who are going to upset other people and make them feel uncomfortable. We don't want to be disagreeable. And so the temptation for any preacher on any given day might look a bit like this. To, to avoid the topics that we know that someone in the congregation is going to disagree with me. 
and, and um, therefore, oh, I better not say that because they'll get upset with me. Or to concentrate on the pump-me-up, feel-good messages. So, so it tells everyone that they're so wonderful and how lucky God is to have us and, and shy away from messages that actually demand something of us. Things like repentance, commitment, long-suffering. And, of course, there's the temptation that, that I just tell you that God's going to bless you. He's going to bless you with all of the stuff that you are craving in this life and, um, and then totally avoid everything that we've just been hearing in the last two weeks about being a faithful disciple of Jesus and having to suffer because of it. All right? The temptation is ever-present to just give a message that will get the approval of men and women. Now, that's not the way Jesus taught. I think of a time when Jesus had actually grown the first mega church, right? He had, had, had 5,000 men there, plus women and children at the feeding of the 5,000. And then very shortly after, in John chapter 6, he gives quite a hard teaching, and most of them up and leave. And the very next scene, you know how many he's got? Twelve. I reckon I could do that to a church. I reckon I could easily take it from a church of 5,000 to a church of 12. Um, and even, and Jesus said to those, you going to desert me too? And Peter said, where are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Right, so when Jesus taught, he could take it from a mega church to a group of 12 in one message. And even one of them wasn't faithful. And that's what can happen when we teach, not for the approval of men, but teach for the approval of God. It might not make us popular, um, and we might not be the biggest, fastest growing in number. We do not preach for the approval of men, and we do not teach for the approval of men. We do it for the approval of one only, and that is the Lord our God. He's the only one who counts. So he says, do your best, that's talking about persistent zeal, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, not a slacker, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Now, do you understand what he's saying here? It, if there are workers of the gospel who are approved by God and who have no need to be ashamed, ashamed do you realise that what Paul is telling Timothy here? Make sure that you're one of these because there's also those who should jolly well be ashamed of themselves because their teaching does not meet the approval of God. The ones who are approved by God rightly handle the word of truth. What's the word of truth? It's the good news. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's what was taught by Jesus. It was taught by the apostles. And where do we find this today? Well, it continues to be the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles. And that's what our Bible is. The New Testament contains all of what all of these teachings that we need to know. And so an approved worker today, one who need not be ashamed before the almighty God, is someone who rightly handles the scriptures. But what does it mean to rightly handle in the Greek, it literally means to cut a straight road. Now, farming has changed a lot in the last 20-odd years. Uh, once upon a time, uh, there was a real art 
to ploughing a straight line in a paddock. Is that right, Scott? And, and you'd, you'd cherish a worker who could do that for you, wouldn't you? Yeah. But, but now, even the most unskilled of truck tractor drivers, once you've taught them the basics, as long as they have the, enough nous about them to be able to activate the auto steer GPS guidance system, you can get straight as a die run from one end of the paddock to the other. It's, it's quite an amazing thing. Now, when I was an instructor at the Ag College, that was long before auto steer. By the time I finished, auto steer was just beginning to come in. Um, so we didn't, we didn't have any auto steer and for me my job was to train students how to drive tractors and very rarely would I get someone who'd already done a fair bit of work on their on, on, before they came to college and so I'd be starting off with, with quite green tractor drivers and teaching one after the other how, how to drive straight and what I'd do is I'd, I'd start it off by cutting a straight line myself and then I'd put them in the driver's seat and we'd, we'd sort of get them operating and I'd give them a few pointers and try and show them how to keep it straight. And, but it invariably, it gets just to the time when you've just got to get off and leave them to their own, own devices. But even so, just before I'd get off, I'd usually say, right, let me straighten it up for you again and I'd leave them with a nice straight run again and then leave them to it. Then I'd come back at smoko time or lunch time and pretty common thing would be the centre of the paddock would be reasonably straight. Not, not all of them, but most of them. But on the ends, you'd have a great big whoopsie, particularly if there was a tapered end on a paddock. They're the worst, aren't they, Scott? You find that too, Audrey? They're the worst. And, um, and anyway, so I'd... I'd get on the tractor while they ate their lunch and straighten it up for them again and then spend a bit more time trying to show them how to stop that from happening. You see, to keep it straight on the ends, particularly when it's a tapered end, is you've got to pick that point on the horizon and you've just got to, right from the start, you know around about, that's a point, and just keep checking yourself all the way on that line. That's the point we're heading to. And, and that way, when, you, when you're getting towards the end, you keep heading straight towards the point. But... The problem is young fellas get distracted. They get distracted. And they're sort of driving along and go, oh, oh um, I think that's the tree that I'm heading for. And then they sort of go, oh. And, and if they get a little bit wrong on the first pass, and it just gets worse and worse and worse every pass they do. I can see Scott over there going, mm-hmm, I know what you're talking about. And and they just drift further and further and further away. And that's what I thought of when I read this. To rightly handle the word of truth is to cut a straight line. And if we get distracted from the simple, straightforward truth of God's word, then we're going to drift further and further and further away. And further away from, from the true understanding and further away from godliness. And so my job today is, is not to create any new meaning or to try and explain God's word in a way that changes it at all from what Jesus meant when he said it or from what the apostles meant when they said it. My job is to make God's word known, the word of truth, along with all of its challenges and all of its blessings. Because if I was to change the word of truth, what would we call it? It would be no longer truth. It would be a lie. 
right? So that's the main point. And all of these other thoughts revolve around this one key point. Timothy, as the pastor of that church in Ephesus, make sure that you rightly handle the word of truth. And Paul really needs to say this because we can see coming out through this passage and through this whole letter that Timothy is being confronted with false teachers who believe some absolutely crazy stuff. They, these false teachers are not handling the word of truth correctly and Timothy has to deal with that in his church. And so the first thing um, is the necessity to maintain right doctrine. Oh, there's that word doctrine. What, what's doctrine mean? I mean, we sort of, we might hear the word doctrine and go, oh, that sounds very religious, or that sounds very legalistic. Doctrine is the teaching. It is the belief that we, that we have about Jesus. And everybody's happy to keep the right teaching and the right belief? I hope so, right? We're all happy with, with good doctrine then. Because when all of the crazy stuff and all of the twisted forms of the gospel gets trotted out, the one thing that is most needed in a church is consistently good, sound, straightforward biblical teaching. And that's why Paul has just reminded Timothy of what he calls these things. Um, stuff that he's taught before, but he's saying, Timothy, you stick to the truth. A and we must too. So, in the previous section, he's, he's been talking about persecutions. He's been talking about attacks on the church, and, and these things come from outside of the church. But when it comes to false teachings, the danger comes from inside the church. Now, when I used to be in another church, it was, it was a large denomination, uh, I was on a synod discussion group. And it was a group where we used to discuss issues that, of theology uh, within our own denomination. And there were a few people on that group, very vocal people, who were following what we used to, well, what they call progressive theology um, or progressive Christianity. Very arrogant name. It's like, we're the progressive ones and you lot, you, you, you're old hat. You, you don't know what you're talking about. Basically, progressive Christianity, their ideas presents God as this, well, it removes all supernatural presence and power of God. And it basically turns Christianity into some kind of humanistic philosophy without this all-powerful God um, who's actually giving us commands and, and who actually died for us. Um, and these people, that, they would post the most heretical, unbiblical statements but often they would just post them in the forms of thought bubbles. I wonder, I wonder if, what, if it could mean this. And they just present it. And that way, if you sort of said, well, you can't be a Christian and believe that. Oh, well, I didn't say that I did believe that. It's just a question I raise. Are you scared to answer that? And they just put up all of these thought bubbles, but it was just polluting and polluting and polluting. And that's what I immediately thought of when, when Paul said to Timothy to avoid or shun. I mean, we don't like using the word shun, but it's, that's really what it's meaning. Shun irreverent babble. Uh, in other words, shun godless chatterboxes 
uh, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And, and that's exactly what it does. Uh, when discussion groups or, or even anyone in the church starts introducing a whole heap of, of godless and incorrect thought bubbles that are completely different to what Jesus taught, completely different to what the apostles taught, people just get led further and further and further away from godliness. And he says, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Um, has anyone ever seen gangrene? We don't see it much anymore because it's so horrible. Um, gangrene, I was going to, uh, if, if Dr. Karen was here, was ask her to confirm this, but you're just going to have to take my word for it. Um, I think gangrene happens when the blood supply is some, for some reason, interrupted to a part of your body. And so it necrosis. It, it starts to die, this part of your body. So like um, you might have a, a big toe or something and it, and it starts to die because the blood flow has been cut off from it. And then, because it, it's died, it starts to rot. And that rot just starts spreading and spreading and spreading. Is anyone, I'm looking at Laura's face at this moment. <laughs> okay, now the feeling that Laura's got, Think of that happening in the church, right? That's, that's what gangrene is. Um, irreverent babble, godless chatter is like that in the church. More and more people are being led into more and more ungodliness and it spreads. And Paul illustrates this with, with, with the two blokes who Ben couldn't pronounce before, um, who used to do this sort of thing in Ephesus, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Philetus. I'm not sure, did I pronounce that right, Pastor Bruce? Yeah, oh good. Um, they didn't cut a straight line. They swerved from the truth in a big way. I mean, they were saying that the resurrection's already happened. Now, I don't know exactly what they were teaching, but it sounds like they were thinking that maybe it was a spiritual resurrection, right? We've already been raised in Christ. Done job. Um, a, a typical, excuse me, a philosophical temptation was to take it from, to make it a, a thing of the mind and of the spirit and not of the body. But as Christians, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Is anyone looking forward to that? All of the old people and broken people. Uh, when Jesus Christ returns, you're not going to be a free or floating spirit like a balloon floating around. You're going to have a body. God's going to give you a body. It's a body that's not going to get sick and it's not going to die. It's a body that's not going to wear out. So during the week, Bruce and I were comparing our fused ankles I don't think I've ever actually even spoken to somebody with a fused ankle before, and apart from myself. And now Bruce has got, got one. Um, he wins, by the way. His injury was much worse than mine. But in the power of God and with the wonders of modern medicine, we can both walk. Um, so we're not complete cripples. Um, but if this had happened back in Jesus' day, we'd be the blokes on the side of the road saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We would be the cripples who were begging. But there's some things that we can't do. And at the resurrection, we're not going to have fused ankles anymore. So we're going to be given new bodies with talus bones that cannot crumble. And um, 
And so we're not going to embarrass our children when we try to run or, or jog down a hill. But with their crazy talk on the resurrection, these two blokes were upsetting the faith of some. Now to upset, it means upending. And that's what godless chatter and godless thought bubbles do. They present a whole bunch of new ideas that's a whole load of rubbish. And some believe it and their faith gets upended. And some get lost in the arguments that go to and fro as people are trying to rein in this false teaching and they go, ah, oh, this isn't what I thought Christianity is supposed to be. And their faith gets upended too. But while false teaching is like rotting flesh that spreads, God's word stands. It's a firm foundation. Bearing this seal, bearing this proof, bearing this mark, the Lord knows those who are his. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, to understand what Paul's saying here, we need to go back into our Old Testaments because he's quoting from Numbers chapter 16, verse 5. Now, so let me set the scene of what happened there. Korah, he was a descendant of Levi, and therefore he was one who was set apart to serve in the tabernacle, because that's what the Levites did. But he wanted more than that. He had certain jobs that he was allowed to do, but God had said that, that these other jobs are to be done by these other people. And so Korah, along with a few other men, and joined by 250 of the leaders in Israel, they all rose up before Moses and they said, you've gone too far, Moses. You've gone too far. All of Israel are holy. Why can't we serve in those important jobs in the tabernacle as well? Moses, you and your mates, you're just exalting yourselves. We should all get a go at this. Now, there's a bit of a problem with that because God had given the instructions of who was to do what. And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. I'm reading from verse 4. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. And so there was then a plan put in place so that God could show who was his. But Korah, Dathan and Abiram refused to show up then we're not going to go there we're not going to do what you say and so Moses said right everyone get away from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away in their sins in verse 28 and and Moses said hereby you shall know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord if these men die, as all men die, or if they're visited by the faith of all mankind, then Yahweh has not sent me. All right? So he's saying, if nothing extraordinary happens here, God hasn't sent me. All right? But if Yahweh creates something new and the ground opens, opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised Yahweh. And that's exactly what happened. 
the ground opened up and swallowed up them and their tents and their families. Right? These blokes, they wanted to introduce a new narrative, a new story. They wanted to cut their own crooked line instead of sticking to God's straight down the line word that he had said. But God knows who are his. And it wasn't Korah and his mates. And it's not the babblers of godless words who keep introducing godless teaching into the church. And just like Moses' word to the congregation of Israel was right, get right away from those men unless you want to get caught up in it. Paul's, just like that, Paul's word for Timothy and for the church in Ephesus is let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, get right away from that twisted teaching of God's word. Have nothing to do with it. Shun those who teach these destructive things, otherwise others might get caught up into it too. Now that, that sounds pretty harsh. And for us as Christians, how, how does this fit with, with our understanding of the church? I mean, if the church are our brothers and sisters in Christ, how does it then fit with us shunning them and cutting them off and having nothing to do with them? And to help us to understand this, Paul gives us a picture of the church, I'm going to call it the church community, being wider than the church. Are you with me? The church community being wider than the church. So, what is the church? And what is the church community? So if we think of the church community, the community that gathers here today and other days, um, it's a whole bunch of people who meet together, but we're not all at the same place with God. Right? Some are truly God's people. This is the church, right? The church are truly God's people. To believe in him, to trust in him, to follow him, to serve him, uh, to, to give our hearts to him and to, to receive forgiveness in his name, to, to know him and to be known by him and to be transformed by him as the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and makes us more and more and more holy, right? This is the church. But also within the church community, we have seekers, right? People who are wanting to know, I wonder what this Christian thing, Christianity thing is all about. And they sort of come along to church and kick the tires and go, oh, is that what those Christians believe? Yeah, okay. Now, I, I hope that we're going to have more and more seekers in this church community, People coming and, and wanting to know, what do those Christians believe? And that's a little hint, everybody. Invite your friends, invite your neighbours, bring them to church and say, hey, look, I, Christ is my life. Bring, come along and, and find out what, what we believe. But also in the church community, there's, there's people who come just looking for answers. They might have things happening in their life and, and they're not believers, but they're sort of hoping, maybe I might be able to get some advice from a marriage. Or maybe I can get some advice for, for how to bring the kids up a bit better or something. Um, then there's people who are just wanting to have some kind of spiritual experience, but they're not committed to the one true God. 
but they've heard, hey, spiritual stuff's happening. I, I want to go to a church and, and see if there's something spiritual there for me to experience. And some aren't at all interested in God's beautiful truth. They have their own ideas, and that's what I want to hear when I go to church um, for whatever reason. And so Paul gives us an image of the church community being bigger than the church. He calls it the great house, as in big, right? The big house. And in a house, there's all sorts of vessels, some for honourable use, made of gold and silver. Right? So think of your good cutlery and your good crockery that you've got at home, right? The, the, the stuff that you, you would never take at camping, right? Think of those things. That's, that's for good and honourable use. And there's some things for dishonourable use, made of wood and clay. So think of the rubbish bin. Or before there were toilets, think of the potty or the proverbial dunny bucket, right? So it's not a nice image, but that's really what he's talking about. Now, some folk might get very offended by this. Michael, what, what on earth are you saying? Are you saying because I'm not a true, true believer, I, I'm, I'm the bucket of the proverbial? Well, please don't get offended because here comes the great part of this illustration. I was a bucket of the proverbial, right? Um, this is a story that we've all lived. The contrast is between the honourable and the dishonourable. The contrast is between between the holy and the unholy. And at one time, none of us were holy. That is, until we became his. Until we repented of our sin and gave our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ and became his. And in Paul's illustration here, there's some great news. Verse 21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonourable, he will be a vessel for honourable use set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And this is an amazing thing that, that God can do. Um, we, we couldn't even possibly imagine taking the proverbial bucket and turning it into good crockery. We, we just couldn't imagine that. But essentially, that's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And in Paul's illustration here, that, that's, that's just the great news. When we repent of our sin, when we repent of our wrongdoing, when we repent of our godless babble, our Lord takes us who once were dirty, rotten scoundrels, dishonourable, and he cleanses us and he recreates us. We're totally born again. We're no longer the same person. The old person is put to death. And he raises up the new. And so Paul says to Timothy, who's a young fella, so flee from your youthful passions. I wonder, wonder what things Timothy had going on. You know, oh, youthful passions. Was he checking out the chicks? Or was, he, or was he getting on the grog? Or was he hooning on the streets? And, and yes, those sorts of things are youthful passions. But if we look at the context um, and see what other advice Paul then goes on to give Timothy here, I suspect that the youthful passions for Timothy might be something very different. Sometimes youthful zeal expresses itself in an ugly, self-righteous condemnation and judgment of others, often over very minor things. And 
I've seen it happen where one person disagrees with another person on a minor matter, a, a disputable point of doctrine, and you know, we have things that are essentials in the gospel. We cannot, like these things are really essential, but then other things, hey, it doesn't really matter if, if, we, if I don't believe the same thing as you in certain areas. And, and yet they judge them. And they brand them as a heretic. And it's sort of like, oh, you're going to go to hell for believing that. And, and all over something that is not an essential of the Christian faith. So he's saying, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, be a pure vessel that fits well with all of the other pure vessels. In the house of the Lord, you and I, we're not individuals. In the house of the Lord, we're part of a set. We're the set of the good crockery. We're the set of the good cutlery. Verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Now, he's already been told to shun the babblers and the godless teaching. And Paul is always one to call a spade a spade. False teachings are ill-educated ill and senseless. That's, that's just the way it is. And that seems strange to me because most people that try to bring new teachings in, often it comes in in the guise of, of, um, the, of the academics. Oh, we're, we're fully trained, like we know lots of stuff here, and now we know that this now means this, and they bring in something which is absolutely ridiculous. And it, it, Paul's been quite blunt here, saying false teachings are ill-educated and senseless. That, that's just the way it is. God's word is the word of truth, and those who change it don't know anything. It's a nonsense that they're trying to teach. Now, to have nothing to do with these controversies isn't about sidestepping or ignoring uh, we know this from the example of the two blokes, um, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Uh, these two blokes, they probably never dreamed that their names would be in the Bible. Um, sad for them that, that their names are in the Bible. It'd be a bit embarrassing, really, because uh, their names are known for all the wrong reasons. And in the first letter that Timothy wrote, Hymenaeus gets another mention. He handed Hymenaeus over to Satan. Now, when Paul says that, that's his way of saying, I excommunicated him, right? So basically, Hymenaeus, what you are teaching is so wrong. It is so destroying to the faith of the church. You're not welcome to come to church anymore because you keep talking about that sort of rubbish and you keep upsetting the faith of some. You're not welcome here until you learn not to blaspheme. Now, that's pretty severe, pretty severe. And that is actually what it means to take avoidance to, to, the, to the strongest step. But even a tough stand like that has at its aim for restoration of that person. It's, it's, that person is in the wrong, but we want you to be put out so that you are so grieved that you realise this, I actually have to repent of this and come back to God 
to repent and be restored to faith. This is the action. This is what we were hoping for. And, and so Timothy, as the Lord's servant, don't be quarrelsome. Be kind to everyone, even if you've got to excommunicate them. Be kind, kind to everyone. Quarrelling over what we believe, that's not going to do any good. We don't just quarrel and quarrel and quarrel. That just takes a church to be a very unpleasant thing. Teaching is what's required. Good, sound, straight-cutting teaching. Patiently enduring evil. Now, that doesn't mean putting up with evil and letting it go unchallenged. It can't mean that because the very next thing he says is correct your opponents, but do it with gentleness. Why is he doing it with gentleness? It's because it's not about having this ugly, youthful condemnation and judgment. So really what he's telling Timothy here is teach with integrity, correct with gentleness, because our aim, which is a very godly aim, is to always, always to, to take one from being an uninformed babbler of ungodly thought bubbles and to take them so that they can have a solid, straight, cut, biblical understanding of God, the gospel and his word. It takes genuine repentance for that to happen. And sadly, in my experience, rarely does it happen. Sometimes it does, but rarely. Because once a person commits themselves to, to an ungodly babble and, and they just talk about it and, and become evangelists for their un, ungodly teaching, it takes an enormous change. Um, they're so filled with pride in what they believe that for them to turn from it, it puts them in a, in a position where their pride just won't let them. And so it's, it has to be a miracle of God for a person to return to the straight and narrow. And the reason it has to be a miracle of God is because there's a spiritual battle at play here. To get involved and, and to accept and to be party of godless chatter is a snare of the devil. It's a trap of the devil. And those who embrace it, that those who wander off from the straight cut word of God and, and babble on with, with godless teaching, he says they've been captured by the devil to do his will. Why would the devil bother? See, the devil knows he's going to cop it. His fate is sealed. When Jesus returns, he's going to throw the devil into the lake of fire and that's where he stays. But the devil is the ultimate spoil sport. His aim is to be a barrier to the good that God is doing. And he knows that a little bit of godless babble, instead of the straight cut word of God, will totally upend the faith of some. And it can cause a church to break down and they just start arguing over words and descend into quarrels. See, it, it's not just a difference of opinion. Some people want to just say, oh, it's just a difference of opinion. It's not just a difference of opinion. This is a spiritual battle. And we cannot let crooked teaching go unchecked because that's exactly what the devil wants. The answer, correction, by sticking to teaching the straight cut word of God. 
you know what? I think about this and I go, why would we ever want to change God's word anyway? It's so beautiful. This is the way it is. What the Lord has done for us in Christ Jesus, let's embrace that with our whole hearts. And, and, the, and the laws that God has provided, they're a joy to keep, not a burden. And as the Holy Spirit lives in our life, we will just live more and more according to the commandments of God without even trying. It just becomes more and more beautiful to us. Living day by day for him. So let's embrace it with our whole hearts. Embrace the gospel. Living day by day for Jesus. And my prayer, I'm going to take from verses 20 and 21. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, amongst the Christian community, you've told us that there are various vessels, some for honourable use, some for dishonourable. And Lord, you, you tell us to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonourable. But we know also that we depend totally on you. And so Lord, we do our bit. We repent. We repent of our sin. We repent of when we've entertained godless thought bubbles and babbled on with, with godless teaching, God, forgive us, Lord, we pray. Cleanse us that we would become vessels for truly honourable use, set apart as holy, useful to our master, ready for every good work. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.